0: It is my pleasure today to uh, welcome our guest. Uh, I think that all of you probably um, you know, know exactly who he is, and he's a very uh, interesting book that he has written. Um, what you what you may not fully appreciate is that in his position as uh, one of the people who writes the Hurt on the Street column from Wall Street Journal, uh, Greg Zuckerman has the power to move the market, and uh, when I was at the New York Times, one of his predecessors, whose name was Foster Winans, uh, provided man. me with one of the best stories I had early, early on because he turned out was a crook, yeah. <laughs> and went to jail. He was actually
1: uh, I wasn't there. <laughs>
0: The thing is, it is a very sensitive spot at uh, a very important newspaper, and I think the fact that uh, Gregory has done it and then has done this uh, this terrific book about the probably the one person in the world who really you know made a killing on after, while the rest of us were being killed uh, financially, uh, he's made uh, a, a book that I think a lot of people have found really really fascinating. Uh, the greatest. Trade ever is the way he framed it, and uh, Gregory, we're very glad to have you here to uh, to learn more about your what you what you what you look, what you came to understand, and also uh, where you think we're going
1: now. Sure, thank you very much. Um, thanks for the opportunity, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming during lunch hour. I um, wrote a book. It's called The Greatest Trade Ever. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some lessons and some uh, observations from it, and then we'll leave a considerable amount of time, it sounds like, for QA, and a So feel free to kind of throw anything uh, and everything at me, um, why we cover certain issues, how we're covering certain issues, how we've changed. Um, I'm, I've am i moved on from this uh, huge trade to kind of cover some new ones um, that are um, impacting financial markets. We can talk about those as well. So. Um, I'll take you back to um, how I got excited about this book and why I got excited about this book. In 2007, I got a call from a hedge fund manager, and hedge funds kind of are are these investment partnerships that can do almost anything and sometimes do it really well and sometimes not so well, and um, some of the smartest and and brightest guys out there, and a guy calls me up and he says, Greg, I just had to play tennis. Uh, with this guy, John Paulson, and I didn't really know much about him at the time. This is the manager saying and I, and I personally didn't know that much about him. But, Greg, he is making a killing as everybody else is losing money. And right away, that intrigued me because John Paulson was mm-hmm. is, is probably the least likely person to have made billions from this crisis. And that sort of propels my book. It's that sort of... Uh, paradox that it should have been John Paulson. Actually, it's, it's not really uh, a book about John Paulson. It's about a number of investors who see a collapse coming, get worried about it early, and take steps to prepare their firms and to take advantage of what they see as sort of this coming difficulty for the country. And um, some, I sort of envision my book as kind of a race up the mountain, and some make it to the top, including John Paulson and a few others, but a number kind of slide back down for various reasons that I explore. And it's sort of, um, to me, it's a dramatic um, tale. And um, I I still enjoy um, learning more things about it, so here, but but the thing that really um, got me so excited is um, the paradox that it should have been the experts who saw this coming. It should have been the Wall Street types, the insiders, and yet um, it were, the the people that saw this were um, a few, and I'll tell you, go through a few of them, kind of a thumbnail sketch. John Paulson, so John Paulson is a, a merger arb, a merger arb Is someone who bets on mergers. They bet on announced deals already. It's among the safest forms of investing. Actually, you buy shares in the company being acquired, and you and you sell short the company doing the acquisition. And there are ways to shake it up a little bit, but it's relatively uh, risk or or there's less risk in this kind of investing than almost any other kind of investing. And John Paulson was a singles hitter. He was no home run hitter, and yet he's the one who did this kind of thing. It wasn't. There were a group of people, if you think about it, who should have done the um, coup of the century? This is the financial trade of all time. Just to give you some context, John Paulson and his firm made $20 billion over two years, 2007, 2008, and into early 2009. And um, until that point, the greatest trade in history had been George Soros betting against the British uh, pound. That was in 1992. And they made about a billion dollars only For their firm, uh, betting and making that trade, so this twenty billion dollars by far is the greatest in in history, and so but but why was it? Why wasn't it somebody like George Soros who um, saw this financial crisis coming? Why wasn't it uh, Warren Buffett? Um, Jim Chanos is a big short seller. That's what he does for a living. He bets against things. Bet that things should fall. He missed it. Um, all the insiders on Wall Street kind of missed, or many of them did. And yet, it was John Paulson. His right-hand man is a gentleman named Paolo Pellegrini. He's a uh, native of Italy, He's a <coughs> smart guy, graduate of uh, Harvard Business School. But he spent a career kind of kicking around on Wall Street, never really finding much success. He was an investment banker for a while, never got much of a promotion, had a couple businesses, didn't really work. He found himself in 2005 in a one-bedroom apartment uh, in Westchester and didn't really have a job or much of a a future he had two children from he had gone through two marriages already and he um didn't want to say goodbye have to go back to italy and, and leave them so he needed to find a job so he calls up john paulson and he says, hey, do you have a job? They would overlapped a little bit at, uh, at Bear Stearns uh, earlier in their careers. And Paulson says, well, all I've got is this analyst job. You don't really want it. It's sort of a lot of grunt work. And the last person that had this job went off to business school. And Pellegrini said, no, 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 I, I'd like this job. Um, I need a job. And that was in 2005. Two, two years later, Pellegrini's uh, on vacation. Uh, with his new wife, um, his third wife. um, Talk about the greatest trade ever. She did pretty well for herself. Um, So she, and and she checks the ATM. They're at uh, I think St. Bart's and um, she didn't really have a sense for how this trade was going. Uh, Paolo's a superstitious guy, didn't really share too much with his wife. And uh, she checks the ATM just on the way out to go do something, play tennis or something. And she says, uh, Paolo there's $45 million in our bank account. And it was only part of the $170 million that he made that year as a bonus for helping Paulson come up with the trade of the century. So it should have been Paolo Pellegrini. It should have been John Paulson. It should have been Jeffrey Green. Jeffrey Green is another investor, saw this coming and prepared for it. And he's a playboy type out in Beverly Hills who had made a fortune in real estate, lost a fortune, and had made more money again and was worried to death about real estate. And he heard about the trade from his old friend John Paulson and he stole the idea. He admits he stole the idea from Paulson and he ran with it. And But again, he's not your conventional investor that should have figured this thing out. Um, another gentleman I write about, his name is Michael Burry, who's a doctor-turned-investor. And he's up in Northern California, um, younger than these other gentlemen. I mean, didn't have that much of a track record and he did stocks his whole life. And here he was in 2005 getting worried about housing and mortgages and these toxic mortgages and his own investors were kind of skeptical and he didn't have that much of a track record. And again, he once was a doctor, he doesn't have this great pedigree as bright as they come, but he's not the guy you would have expected to figure this whole thing out. And in Southern California, there's a gentleman named Andrew Lade, who's younger and was, was adamant that the um, collapse of the financial system was coming, he was just as adamant about that as he was about how they should be, uh, we, this nation should be legalizing marijuana. So, um, again, not, you know, the person you would expect to have uh, pulled this thing off. So why was it this group of people that I write about and not the kind of experts? So I, I, I've been thinking about that, and that's sort of um, some of the themes I kick around and why why Wall Street didn't get it right. and. Part of the answer, I think, um, people think that Wall Street um, tried to uh, either trick or kind of screw investors, and, and uh, there's a lot of blame on Wall Street. But I find it kind of fascinating that if you think about it, the biggest losses, actually, were um, suffered by Wall Street firms. They weren't really investors. The investors obviously lost money, but Citigroups and Merrill and obviously Lehman and Bear Stearns. It's as if the um, it's as if it's a butcher. I can kind of. Can, uh, think of it as a, as a butcher who's got this um, noxious kind of um, um, poisonous meat and knows it's kind of, or should know it's poisonous, and instead of kind of serving it to, to the customers, takes it home and gives it to the kids, and they got stuck with it all. And that's a, a, a confounding thing to me, That because the Wall Street firms were the ones who created this product. They created these um, toxic mortgages, and they couple and they, they packaged that together into these uh, collateralized debt obligations, just sort of fancy word, CDOs for kind of um, groups of mortgages they packaged together um, and sold to investors, but they often put them on their own books and believed in them, which is a crazy kind of thing because they're the ones who created them. If anyone should have known better, it should have been the Wall Street insiders, and yet they're the ones who, got suffer, who suffer the most, not the least. So um, part of the reason, I believe, is, well, there are a lot of reasons. One of that is that um, Wall Street pays really well, and as a result, People retire kind of early <laughs> and there, isn't, there aren't that many people with uh, much of an experience institutional background and who, people who remember past blow-ups. There was no one around who remember 1992 and ni- early 90s when actually pockets of real estate went down in, in Boston and in California and people on the street um, working on Wall Street didn't really remember that and uh, didn't, that didn't inform their views. There's also, um, unfortunately, things had evolved to the point where a lot of these products have become very complicated. And the guys at the top, the uh, Robert Rubens and the Chuck Princes, people running these firms, didn't really understand the products themselves. And they deferred to the guys in the middle. And and they deferred to these models they had created. The models were based on past experience, past data. And that really blew up in them. And the guys in the middle, and I know some of these people. Some of them live in my local town. They're not evil people, the people that created some of these products. And some of them, um, We're skeptical, but um, unfortunately we're at the point where people worry so much about quarter to quarter earnings on Wall Street and getting your bonus and competing and not falling behind uh, everyone else that they couldn't take a step back. There were very few people to kind of take a step back and say, well, Hold on a second here. Um, well housing can't go on like this forever. There's data and John Paulson came up with a lot of this data that was very convincing. It showed kind of right in front of them and he kept looking at it. It's like, wait, hold on a second here. Housing kind of historically kind of went up, you know, three percentage points a year. All of a sudden, boom, it's shooting up seven, eight percent a year. That just can't make sense that it's gonna go on forever. Let's take some steps to prepare. And the guys at Wall Street on Wall Street really aren't paid to um, think about these kind of outlying uh, events that could happen, unfortunately, and if you think about who runs um, Wall Street and the financial system, it's Geithner and, and Bernanke and, and people in Moynihan and Bank of America, people that come through the system, the kind of organizational men who play the, play by the rules and they're not outliers, they're not thinking about the kind of events that could happen, they're really paid to kind of uh, manage um, really well other people and quarter to quarter, those kinds of things, so <coughs> there aren't enough people thinking about the outlying events that could happen and to your credit these people that I write about do they stick with their trade which I think um, is they get as much credit as predicting the kind of thing a lot of people predicted it actually but a few people threw themselves into, into figuring out how to express this, this worry and it, it was, to me it's impressive because John Paulson and Pellegrini and Jeffrey Green they were all approaching 50 years of age and the way to do this trade is through current fault swaps which are derivatives and they're not that complicated, but they can be kind of complicated, and credit default swaps are derivatives that people like Warren Buffett have warned against, and they're um, weapons of mass destruction. Should we not uh, um, play with these things? And to their credit, these gentlemen threw themselves into learning this complicated new world, even though they were um, approaching 50 and, and had all, and already were, some of them were wealthy already. They didn't really have necessarily uh, need to. Um, the backward wasn't against the wall, but they had this intense interest in, in, in creating history and finding the trade of a lifetime. And, and they did, and they ha- and they held on to their conviction, and their own investors didn't really believe in them. Um, John Paulson came here to Harvard Management Group to, to raise money um, for this fund, where he was betting against housing and betting against these toxic mortgages. And they didn't give him any money over here at Harvard. They, they said, well, we've got our own ways of doing on. this trade, and they <laughs> did not <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know i no knock on jail give him money yeah they not give money uh, <laughs> um, but john was a graduate of, of harvard um tu his christ so uh, you know any um any he um, credits to Harvard's education as well, but he also wished he had made, raised some money. And they did, it because it was just emblematic of the period where people were skeptical people like Paulson. In um, some ways, they were sort of like Noah and the Ark, and um, these people were warning, and they were taking steps to prepare for a flood. They were convinced was coming, and people just sort of made fun of them and laughed at him. Uh, the last observation I was gonna, I'm going to make is that the person that pay, takes the most risk in my book, I believe, it's not Paulson. It's a guy named Greg Littman. And Greg Littman is a trader at Deutsche Bank. And he got nervous about housing in about 2005. And he started taking, making some of these same trades. And he was already making several million dollars a year. And truth of the matter is, and this is sort of one of the problems we've got on Wall Street, is the incentives really, the rational man, if he was, <laughs> if he was rational, he would have just gone along with everybody else on the trading desk. And, and they were all kind of somewhat bullish on housing, and not overly so, but pretty bullish. And he wouldn't have taken these bearish steps because if he um, was bullish like everybody else, okay, they got it wrong. He still have his job. He's still been making a few million a year, and he didn't really need to take this kind of career risk. And instead, he said, no, 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 guys, um, the emperor's got no clothes on. Housing's going to collapse. Let's take some steps, and I'm going to start making these trades. And people... Belittled him, they made fun of him, and if it hadn't worked, he would have been out of there. So he takes a lot of risk, and there aren't enough guys like that. Walter talks a big game about being contrarian, being a contrarian investor, but really, very few people are contrarian, and more than ever, people jump on trades. They do things that other people are doing. They don't want to lose a half a percentage point compared to a, a, and, and the next guy, they might lose their job. And as a result, we're, I believe we're in the age of, of bubbles. If you think back last, kind of 10 years ago. You had the tech bubble, obviously. Housing, um, energy, you could argue is a bubble. Asian currencies. And, and I think it's because too many people, more than ever, are, ju- are finding out what other people are doing and jumping on trades, and an economist would think that things should be becoming more efficient, not inefficient. There's more information out there. there more players. But um, things seem to be becoming more inefficient, and we're prone to bubbles. And it's um, worrisome for a guy like me, and yet gives me stuff to write about. So I guess that's good that too. <laughs> So I'll uh, open it up, and uh...
0: if you would, before you open up to questions, explain, if you would, in a little bit more detail, exactly what they did that made them twenty billion dollars <coughs> over a period of time. Because I can understand it at the very beginning, but how did they manage to sustain it? over two years and make $20 billion out of it.
1: Okay. So basically in 2005 or so, John Paulson had these big worries about housing. He was no housing expert. He had bought and sold a couple of homes. That was about it. And But he had these big worries about housing and about the economy, and he wanted to buy some protection for his firm. Uh, and one way to do that that is something called S&P puts. Those are sort of Um, put contracts on the S&P 500, it basically just protects your downside, but those were kind of expensive. So he was looking for new things, something else to protect his downside, and his right hand man, this guy Pellegrini, who he just hired, knew a little bit about something called credit default swaps. Credit default swaps, or CDS, they sound complicated, but they're not really that complicated. Basically what they are, are insurance contracts, and just like you and I would buy insurance on our homes, and you pay an annual premium on it. and If, God forbid, your home burns down, then you get the the value of it. Same kind of thing. CDS contracts, you pay an annual premium, they're like insurance, and if that which you're insuring, which is usually debt, so if the debt kind of melts down and it's worthless, then you get the full value for it. So same kind of thing. So Pellegrini had a sense of what these CDS contracts were from his previous job, one of his previous jobs. And he said, hey, boss, you know, if you're worried, you should look into these CDS contracts. And together, they really learned, they threw themselves into learning what these things were. And they realized that they were dirt cheap. Basically, you can insure pools of risky mortgages or things that look like risky mortgages to Paulson and Pellegrini. Everyone else didn't think they were so risky. Triple A rated, but they knew that they, they they dug in and they realized this stuff was toxic. So you could ensure these risky pools of mortgages at very cheap prices, very cheap prices. And they turned around. and They said, Wait a second, if this stuff blows up, I'm, we're going to make hundreds of percentage points in gains. And if it doesn't, everything stays steady. Then we lose about seven eight percent a year. Well, it's pretty asymmetrical. Let's just back up the truck and do this. Uh, and yet nobody else did, or very few other people A few other people that I write about um, did, but very few um, did, largely because everyone was fearing this cost, well, hold on, it's going to cost me seven, eight percent a year. And Paulson said, it came from this other world, and I think you needed to come from being an outsider to do this trade and pull it off. He said, wait, hold on a second. The downside is 7%, 8% a year, but the upside is hundreds of percentage points. Uh, I'm just going to buy as much as I can. So they start buying more and more and more of this stuff over time. And experts came to them. They invited, to their credit, they invited all the experts to come and challenge their thesis. There was this guy, Josh Burbaum, who was the top trader at um, Goldman Sachs. And they said, come on into the office. And Broombaum said to them, he sat across from the conference room table from Paulson and Pellegrini and the group, and he said, whatever you're selling, I'm going to buy. And they didn't know what to make of this guy. Was he trying to warn them? Was he trying to scare them off? He was on the other side of these trades. Was he trying to tell them to stop making so many because he was getting stuck with the other side? It was unclear, but bottom line is they ignored the experts. And they kept buying more of these credit default swaps, and in 2007 it started paying off. So the value of this insurance started skyrocketing. So here's a guy Paulson who, in a single month, never made a few more than a few percentage points—five, ten percent, maybe—in a single month. In February 2007, he made 66 percent in a single month. In a single morning, he made more than Soros made in that whole trade against the <laughs> British pound. He made a billion and a half dollars in a single morning. And his investors were happy, obviously, but they were also a little concerned. And they called him up and they said, um, you, you know, there's a typo on your uh, statement here, it's, it's 66%, you mean 6.6%, right? And they're like, no, it's, it was 66%. And some of them were, again, thrilled, but others were worried and they told him, hey, maybe trim some of the positions. And, P- and Pellegrini never really made that much, so he was telling his boss, hey, John, let's take off some of these positions. Let's cut, um, let's cut some of these positions and trim, exit some of our our investments. And Paulson kept saying, "No, look at this chart. Look at this chart you created for me, uh, Pellegrini. We're holding on to this thing." So basically, they held on to it through. Instead of uh, they trimmed some, but they held on to it through 2007. They made 15 billion in 2007, and then John Paulson, to his credit, saw where the dominoes were going to fall, and he said, "Wait, hold on a second. If all the mortgage stuff is imploding." who's holding all this stuff, it's these financial firms. So he started buying these CDS contracts, these uh, uh, credit vault swaps, these insurance contracts. Instead of buying them on the toxic mortgages, he'd start buying them on these financial firms, Lehman, Bear Stearns, all the firms that we know about um, too well. And then when they went down in 2008, he made another five billion, so that's where you get twenty billion dollars, and um, maybe that answers your
0: question. Does he bought a villa in Spain, or what is he? Uh, you know, what is he doing?
1: Yeah, no. Listen, um, John Paulson is a fascinating guy. He um, he does have a beautiful home in the Hamptons. Um, he vacations once a year. Takes his family abroad, but he's working harder today than he did back then. I would argue. He's got much more money to manage. He's got a big team. He's got a new whole trade. He's betting on gold now. It's a big, uh, risky. I would argue much riskier uh, investment. He really believes in gold, and he looks tired, and he's, um, and he just looks um, like he's working very hard. So, uh, but but the way he describes it is all so, you know you and I say you know why don't you just go buy an island, buy a country? If we got to buy an island, and he literally owns. He owns more gold, he and his firm own more gold than many countries do right now. They own about 15% of their portfolios in gold and they manage about $35 billion. That's more than some major countries. Uh, own gold. So he's
0: just betting that the economies of the world are going to collapse in gold therefore?
1: Well, he's betting that uh, currencies, that we've thrown too much money at all these problems, as have other countries, and we've debased our currency, and historically the only real alternative to paper currency has been gold. So he thinks gold's going to rise or just maintain value. It's more of <coughs> a, a safety kind of investment. But I would argue there's, there's more risk in that trade. Now. Um,
0: I'm going to open it now to questions uh, first from students. Yes.
2: Thank you. Um, On the CDS, didn't AIG issue a lot of those, and how did he escape their collapse? Good
1: question. Um, Yes. Um, He didn't know who was on the other side of these trades. Basically, he would go in, or his trader, uh, Brad Rosenberg, would every day go in and say, I'm going to buy more of these insurance contracts. Every day, buy more. And he had to be kind of coy and be sort of – Cavalier but oh, you know, I think we'd buy some more today kind of thing. Because if the people on the other side knew he was going to buy billions of this stuff, they would, the prices would go up and it would get out and all that kind of stuff. So um, they bought all the stuff and didn't know who was on the other side of the trade. They would, let's say, call uh, Bear Stearns, and the trader would sell them these credit default swaps. And then the trader, in, in turn, would go find somebody on the other side. And it turned out that often they were firms like, we don't know for sure, but it looks like it was AIG. So basically AIG was selling the insurance that John Paulson and these other investors I, I write about were buying. So they were on the other side. So then the question is, well, the government um, bailed out AIG. So did the government um, give all this money to John Paulson? The answer is no, and I'll explain why. Um, basically, he made $15 billion in 2007, so by then already, you know, uh, AIG didn't employ till the end of 2008, and he made a few more billion in 2008. I do think that the fact that the government stepped in to save or step in to help AI, uh, AIG made it made it such that John Paulson could make those last few billion, maybe two, three billion. But if they hadn't stepped in, so in other words, he would have only made, only made 17 billion or so. But um, had they not stepped in for AIG, then other financial firms would have uh, imploded. And he, re, and he was betting on them, so he would have made money on those guys, too. So um, bottom line is AIG was probably on the other side of, of a lot of this stuff. And it helped him at the margin that the government stepped in to help AIG, but it didn't make or break the trade.
3: Well, if the problem was that everybody in Wall was doing what they were doing because of the quarter pressure, how
1: can we reward, or is it possible to reward the long term? Is it possible to reward long term? It is possible. Um, I believe in things like clawbacks, where um, you make a mistake and you have to give up some of your bonus from years previous. And you know, right after the implosion, there was all kinds of great talk about things like that. And there's been a little bit of that. There have been some firms that have taken that step. I would argue, not nearly enough. But there have been some um, changes. But you're still getting new people being hired away from other firms. I mean, there's a guy I'm writing about. I'm trying to write about right now. I got to <coughs> run it down and confirm it. But supposedly he made about forty million dollars bonus last year, and which is fine and good if it weren't for the fact that it was really just a, a percentage deal. So, in other words, his group made a certain percentage, and he made, uh, he got his $40 million from that. And I don't believe there's any wording in his contract such that if they end up losing all that same money the next, next year, they have to, he has to give it back. So um, I don't mind people making a lot of money on Wall Street as long as they can potentially give it back if it turns out the uh, profits are ephemeral. So there are ways to kind of structure pay, and I think we're moving at the margin towards that a little bit. Um, I also think that there's something to be said for hiring people with a longer-term perspective. People just kick back and think about what could go wrong instead of just the organizational man who um, is worried about quarter to quarter and is good at managing people. Let's let's hire some people who kind of think about what could go wrong. I don't think we have too many people like that. Some firms like Goldman Sachs do a nice job of risk management and they drill down and they have a better sense for the risk of the entire firm. And there's something to be said for that as well.
3: Um, I think the way you described CDS was very very interesting. It sort of reminds me a little bit of buying insurance on properties that you don't own in Chicago the week before the Great Fire of Chicago burned down the entire center town, and you were there to collect um, on, on the insurance on that. Um, but my question is on, on hedge funds. You cover hedge funds for, for the Water Journal. Um, and very early on, hedge funds were seen as the problem. Then it became the investment banks. Um, and now hedge funds have sort of been left to the side again, nobody talks about them. How much have hedge funds changed after the crisis? And there was the ability as a hedge fund before to take significant risk. And if you blew up, it didn't matter, you could start, start again somewhere else the week after. Has that mentality changed? I'll,
1: I'll, I think you're underlying, uh, I'll answer that, but you also you have an underlying question of how, are hedge funds bad think maybe part of that question, I don't know. Or maybe that's a question other people have, or, or, or how bad are hedge funds? <laughs> that's the better phrased question. Uh, I don't believe they are bad. Um, hedge funds are a fascinating um, group, and I, and I cover them. And um, they think in a different way often than people uh, who work within firms. And they're they're more entrepreneurial. <coughs> they take chances. I think one of the reasons why some of these firms have had problems over the years is, Part of the reason is people get so rich, they retire, so there's no experience, as I mentioned. But also a lot of the entrepreneurial guys who um, are, can be doom and gloomers are guys who leave to run hedge funds. And Goldman Sachs does a nice job of keeping in touch with these guys and calling them up and asking them what they think. Um, and some, but, 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 but they're paid to kind of think about what could happen a little bit more so than people within the firms. So um, hedge funds, are, in general, they're overpaid. For sure they're overpaid. Um, but they do, um, you know. Most of the people I write about are hedge fund managers in the book, and they saw this coming a little bit earlier. So I think they played an important role. People like Jim Chanos um, spotted Enron before other people did, and so we, we need them uh, in the capital markets. They, they ferret out lots of the, the problems ahead of other people. Um, do we need so many of them? No. Do we, um, you know, are we, are we, um, could we have advances in other things like medicine and science if, if these guys could? Put the, shift that brain, brain power in those direction for sure. Um, but they do play an important role. So I don't think they're all bad. And um, I think we overdo it. I think as a in the media, for sure, I think we, we paint them with this um, brush. I think part of it is because they make so much money. So I think there's this instinctive view on the part of the reader and, or the editor that, uh, well, they made so much, so they must have done something wrong. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's clearly the case. I mean, they are more likely to blow up than a mutual fund. But, um, they also more likely to kind of find problems ahead of time, um, as I, I've seen in my book. So, um, how have they changed? So, uh, I don't know if they've changed so much, frankly. They, at the margin, maybe, uh, they never took on, you know, it's interesting The hedge funds were not as leveraged as the investment banks. In other words, they weren't using as much borrowed money. I mean, firms like Bear Stearns and others were uh, had $35 of assets of investments for every dollar they held. So they would just borrow the rest of it. And most hedge funds are not nearly as leveraged then or now. Maybe, uh depends what kind of strategy, it could be $2 uh, of investments for every $1. It could be $5 or $6. But they they, they they learned their lesson from long-term capital. That was the blow-up in 1998. And those guys were leveraged much more. They had much, much too much borrowed money. That blew up on them. And a lot of hedge funds remember that. And never really got carried away, so I don't think they've changed in terms of leverage. What they have changed, this is maybe a little inside baseball here, is that um, a lot of these guys got stuck with illiquid positions. They they fell in love with their investments and, and themselves and, and their viewpoint. And they said, "Wow, I own uh, you know ten thousand shares of Time of New York Times. I'm going to buy." Five ten percent of the company because I'm so smart. With ten thousand shares, I'm even smaller, smarter with a million shares. But they didn't realize they can't get out of these stocks. And now, in two thousand eight, when when things imploded, they had trouble with getting out of all of these companies. So they have learned their lesson. In, I think I don't know for, for maybe, uh, and, and they're not getting into those investments as much. Or if they are, they're doing it um, with, with investors who were comfortable letting them have the money for several years so they don't have to get out quickly. <coughs> Yeah. Um, I've got a, another follow-up question to the counterparty
0: risk mm-hmm. one earlier. You said that uh, that uh, even though he had a lot of
3: exposure to AIG with this credit default swaps, that um, if in the end uh, he would have been hedged because he was he was you know had had short positions, I presume on on the financial institutions.
1: Was he was he? actually managing that counterparty risk or was, I mean, was it like Goldman claimed that they were managing and hedging the risk or was it that he was just doing short positions in equity on the uh, uh, at financial house? That's houses? a good question. I should have addressed it as part of this one. What they did, and Pellegrini came up with this idea, but I don't think it's so unique, frankly, he says it wasn't so unique, is they would have regular um, exchanging of collateral. So in other words, if his positions, these credit default swaps, the insurance contracts, went up a million dollars over a certain period of time, well, then the other guy on the other side would have to give him a million dollars. So it wasn't like waiting till the end and waiting for these billions of dollars to come in. It was being exchanged all the time, all the time. And what they would do, so that's how it was exchanged. The other question is how do you get out of these contracts, because you still have them. And what they would do is they would wait for really bad news in two thousand eight, a little bit in two thousand seven, and they would sell into it. So, in other words, some big bank reports horrible earnings, or some big news to the housing market, and people scramble for insurance. That was the day that John Paulson ended these contracts by selling, by getting rid of them. So, there was daily exchange of collateral, or regular, weekly, maybe, maybe, and then they would sell into the the strength. The, 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 I mean, it's, it's part of the book. The, the funny, there's a funny. Um, part of the book in this guy, Jeffrey Green, this kind of playboy, very smart guy, though, out in California who did it on his own. He's really one of the only individuals to do it on his own, and, he, and he's, a, he's a charismatic guy, and he um, connives or, or, or convinced his broker to let him do it on his own and to, be, and to let him sign these um, um, contracts. Is It's very hard for an individual to do it. He's very wealthy, but still and he basically was trying to figure out when to take off these contracts. He didn't have the exchange of collateral as much as regular as Paulson, and he wanted to get out of these trades, and he couldn't um, often in 2008, and he was going crazy. He was going uh, he was beside himself because here he was. He had a billion dollars, literally a billion dollars waiting for him on paper that he, that, that he should be cashing in, and he couldn't cash in, and he was going crazy. He was calling his broker, and screaming and yelling. And, and it turns out that it helped him that he couldn't get out of these kind of contracts because one day, I think it was when um, John Thane took over from Mer- at Merrill Lynch, he's like, let's get out of these contracts All from, from all kinds of investors um, like Jeffrey Green. So all of a sudden he called up. And Merrill Lynch was eager at that finally to get at a really good price. So he really lucked into the last maybe third of his billion dollars because he couldn't get out of them early on, and he really desperately wanted to. And then he was stuck with them. And then they ended up going up in value as things got worse for this country.
0: Thanks. Yeah. yeah just by coincidence, <clears throat> I was uh, reading a, a summary of a speech by Unger, the sidekick of Warren Buffett, uh, oh, yeah. was given to the Group and the and he was commenting on the fact, and Warren Buffett has to some degree, too, in his uh, annual report, that this investing psychology, the one that apparently your heroes essentially uh, exists in your book because of their expertise and the large amounts of, uh, amounts of money they make, probably relative to this speculating <laughs> frenzy with derivatives and what have you, destroyed the economy of this country, if not the world and they have their long-range picture relative to what's coming up in our economy, it is pretty pessimistic, notwithstanding the high amounts of money that your traders and investors uh-huh, make in uh-huh. Wall Street.
1: Um, I mean, if you, inc- if you want to include these characters among the speculators, then, uh, yeah, those that have speculated have caused our country damage, for sure. I would argue that these are the people we should be listening to and learning from because they saw problems uh, at the core of this financial system and no one listened to them. And they tried warning and people called them fools. And they didn't have any other option but to bet against it. And you know what? They represent um, charities and they represent Um, pension funds and endowments and also wealthy investors, and that's their job, to protect their money and make money for these kind of uh, investors, both um, for-profit investors and not-for-profit. And they, you know, some of these people were within the firms, this guy Greg Whitman at Deutsche Bank, and people were warning and no one was listening to them. So um, their only option was to take steps to buy protection. Uh, They didn't cause any of these mortgages to be made those were, you could argue, I mean, there's a, a liberal argument and there's a conservative argument, and I think they're both right. Um, the um, liberal argument is that there was um, deregulation uh, and people like New Century were able to kind of set, um, give, make mortgages to all kinds of um, people that shouldn't have been given mortgage, these uh, subprime mortgages. And the conservative argument is accurate, too, that people like uh, Schumer and Barney Frank um, put pressure on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to buy up these subprime toxic mortgages that people like New Central were making, and they didn't really care so much about the consequences. So, um, yeah, I understand. It's, it's easy to say, oh, speculators are bad, and we shouldn't have speculators in this country. I mean, I don't know how you distinguish between speculators and investors. And Don't you need savvy investors to allocate capital? I'm not sure we need so many of them. We could cut them in half, and the rest should be curing cancer. But we need some of them to be uh, allocating capital and to be warning people and protecting your investors, I would argue. <clears throat>
3: answer your own question, which I
1: thought was really interesting about why it wasn't the professional shorts
3: who did this? That's a good question.
1: I, um, what is the question? <laughs> well, okay, so there are people that are pros at betting that things fall in value. This guy, Jim Chanos, he's all over the news. He did warn about Enron, and now he's warning about China. He doesn't talk about how he missed the great, this is the greatest opportunity <laughs> in their lives. This is the greatest um, bubble <laughs> in financial history, modern financial history, and these guys all missed it. They all missed it. It's fascinating. Part of it is because too many people, and this is where John Paulson, I think, gets a lot of credit. People said, well, I don't know much about mortgages, and I don't know much about housing, and I do stocks. So, I, and yeah, I understand things might go down in value, but I don't <coughs> know anything about these credit default swaps. That really was the best way. Some of them did short or bet against uh, home builders, and that didn't really work for many years. Um, They were buying each other. So yeah, maybe housing was slowing a little bit, but there was consolidation within the the industry, so some firms were doing well. Countrywide eventually employed it, but for a while it did very well. Um, So a lot of these short sellers got burned there, and they didn't throw themselves into learning about these credit default swaps and these derivative contracts and mortgages, and I don't really know about that. So that would explain why, I think why the guy, the short sellers, a lot of those guys are really more um, stock guys, and they're not derivatives and mortgage guys. And I think they're kicking themselves. The other question is why didn't the mortgage guys? There are people, this guy is Mike Vranos, who is the mortgage expert, um, and and this was a more this is toxic mortgages. The whole crisis was about toxic mortgages. Why the heck, did he bet against this stuff? And I've talked to him. That's what I do for a living. So um, it's fascinating. They are so they didn't see the forest for the trees is the, is the quick answer. They are all focused on pools of mortgages and which one is more valuable than the next. So they would buy this one and short this one. But no one really took a step back. And there's a, a lesson there for the country and for how they run these firms. And very few people took a step back. And it really helped John Paulson that he was this outsider who did merger investing. He didn't know anything about mortgages, really, until he, he Look at, look at the data. and It's like wait, hold on a second here. It's pretty obvious here, but very few people took a step back, and they're, they're very caught up in their own in their own worlds. And it also was lucky. Actually, John Paulson also is, is a lucky guy, as are these other investors, or good fortune because they got excited, or they got worried about housing and in, in, in our country, 2005 or so. And some people who had become worried in 2003, 2004, got burned on these same, some of these same similar kinds of trades, and they got out of them. And Paulson kind of said, hey, what's going on in this country? You know, in 2005, and that was a perfect time. Because in late 2005, prices started um, flattening out, and 2006 started going down a little bit. Yes. Yes, uh, I
3: just have been looking at your book on my way and talking.
1: Uh, Interesting. Feel free to order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got it from Google,
3: so I just track all these characters and all that. Very interesting observation, actually. There's little, another person. Not the here. IP address of that <laughs> <computer. Right. laughs> uh, There was a uh, Harry Paulson here last Monday as well. Uh, different Paulson. Uh, different Paulson yeah. I this yeah. question to him about complexity, and I like your introduction. Actually, it's not that complex. I didn't extend the research on this. Um, there are two scenarios one is this that there is the overnight repo such as the short selling that best pence was doing uh, this short selling investment and then you had the housing market obviously l- let's analyze this deregulation and what really took place because if the housing market had been separated okay from the investors and the risk that they were taking was not taking the whole housing market into this global you know, uh, collateralized debt, CDOs and, C- and CDS, etc. Which uh, uh, JP Morgan started around about in the nineties. And I, I actually, I, I think that if, I mean, you may, you may give me the answer because I heard Paulson last week. I said, "Well, <coughs> what should we do to stop this from happening again? Can we not bring regulation?" And he said, "Well, it's too complicated." And I, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> it's I too complicated. It's just, um, yeah, I don't think it's complicated. I think we <coughs> need to do that. Right? I mean,
1: uh, he's more of an expert than I am. Um, I would argue that basically, you're arguing that. Against securitization. Securitization. I assume not everyone knows what that is. Basically, we ch- over the past few decades, we've learned to instead of just give a mortgage to someone at a bank, um, we do that, but then we take that mortgage and we piece it together and with other mortgages and we chop those mortgages up. I, I write about it a little bit in my book to try to explain to people, and um, and we sell them as investments. So in effect, it's a way uh, to um, for the, for the average um, lender, the kind of. Uh, bank, on the corner bank, to, um, they like it. They don't have to worry so much. They can just sell, oh, they did when things were good, they could just sell these mortgages for cash right away, boom, and make another mortgage. So I think there's value to securitization. I think the one step would be, and, and I think it was, it was mentioned maybe, these credit default swaps are at the root of the problem. These insurance contracts, they helped my investors out, clearly, and there's a, there's a, a, a place for them in the in the world. But what happened was, they were creating so many of these credit default swaps, more than the underlying debt. So let's say you have, make it really simple, you have like 10 bonds, and you want to insure the 10 bonds. Fine, there should be 10 credit default contracts um, to, to insure these 10 bonds, but instead there was 100 of them out there insuring the 10 bonds, and that's um, what the reference was that um, there were a lot of these um, – and, and then AIG was on the other side of, you know, 50 of the 100, let's say. So when those values went down, the AIG went under. under. I don't know why you can't just restrict the um, credit default swaps to the underlying debt, and then it becomes a nice um, protection for some people, those that own it. Nancy. I was just curious if you could talk about the media who were not paying any president company not included in Come on <laughs> yeah yeah um, well let's see I'm not paying attention I, I would um, take issue with that we, we uh, you probably know more about this than I do but we um, we need a news hook to write stories often we do because no one really wants to read or at least editors don't want to read, um, kind of thumb sucker, well, what could go wrong? I'll tell you my own story, <laughs> what, what happens. To because, you know, every day you can what could go No one wants to read those stories, trust me. We all want, in hindsight, oh, we should have written the story, but they're boring to read. I can, I can write 10 of them right now. Well, what could happen to China? What can I can tell you, you know, but I don't know. Do you want to agree? Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you what happened to me. So in 2006, um, my job is to talk to smart investors because they cover the gamut. They do a lot of the research, and um, I pick their brains. I do other things too. I do it critically. I don't listen to everything they say. That's part of my job. But but my job is to be in touch with all, all these kinds of people. And a guy called me up in 2006, a hedge fund manager in New Jersey, in no, 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 summer 2006. Greg, you better get ready. This thing is going to implode. This is the thing that's going to collapse. You better get ready. It could have been even like the late spring. That was kind of early summer. Early summer, thing. And I said... Uh, I agree with you. I wasn't some kind of bull or anything, but I don't know how you write that. Okay, so things could get really bad. <laughs> I get it. Um, I should have figured out a way to do it. That's my own fault. I did write about, so then I started, what happened, so what I did was at the end of 06, and in, in hindsight, it looks like I was really early, but I, but again, months earlier, I'd been warned. But I started writing about, like, November of 2006 because that's when you start seeing some, some. um a news hook, some little data points that some of these subprime lenders out in California were having some problems. So then guys like me could jump on it and start writing about it. Um, so you could you could definitely follow me. I should have done it months earlier. You could say, I, then again, I was in late '06 and things really got bad in 07, 08. Um, there were some other columnists and, and people at the journal, Jesse Eisinger wrote, wrote some stories. Columnists have a little easier job, and uh, I don't do I'd rather hurt on the street, but I don't do that as much and I do broader stuff, and when things implode, I usually jump on them and Um, So columnists can kind of, you know, do kind of a reflective kind of story, like what could go wrong. So I I would argue that we did an okay job, not a bad job, not a great job.
0: Gretchen Morganson, who was my colleague at the Times, used to tell me that um, the hardest stories, the best stories, but the hardest stories were the ones that said, look what's coming and it's going to be bad.
1: I agree. Because that
0: really pisses people off, number one. (laughs) They call your boss and say, are you trying to ruin my business effectively. And these were the ones that are that are really tough in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and such because when they appear they can have a real impact.
1: Yes, and, and it's not just sort of, well, advertisers like bullish stories kind of things. It's like, how many times are you going to write a, a bear story? You don't want to be kind of known as just sort of writing stuff about what could go wrong, because a lot of times it doesn't happen, and you to – so you wait till there's a little something, a little – okay, so here's a little piece of evidence about what could happen. But, but you have to say, generally, the media was skeptical of the housing bubble, so it wasn't like we kind of bought into this Did thing. Did
0: barons take a different tack?
1: bears is always bearish, so I assume <laughs> they <laughs> were bearish, but also yes. Safe to say, yes. <laughs>
0: Uh, you mentioned that a lot of these toxic uh, bonds were rated triple A. Ah. Why do those rating agencies still exist, and why haven't they been litigated out <laughs> of
1: existence? It's uh, a good question. Um, mm-hmm. Well, they argue and they've defended themselves in court, saying that it's free speech, and they right. they're just giving. <laughs> um, and guys like David Einhorn have made strong Would arguments they so that they. It? Well, I mean, they're allowed to make dumb opinions, that's fine. And they, are, they get paid by the issuers. There's an inherent conflict of interest for sure, but if that's how they want to do it, fine. The problem is that they do get benefits that other people, other um, opinion, uh, people that create opinion, that, that share opinions, don't get. They can see um, data and information within firms that I can't see, so, and the government helps them and gives them this, that ability. So I would argue that, um, yeah, they, they, this should have been some changes. There really been have been no changes. It's, it's shocking, actually. And everyone sort of says, "Oh, agencies don't listen to them," and yet they do. And uh, too often, people defer judgment in, in to those to those ratings. Yes,
2: John. Uh, I have a two-part question, um, uh, and I'll give you the second one first. You can think about it. You may or may not have seen uh, the pages in New York Magazine this week about Rupert Murdoch and the Wall Street mm. Journal, and. Um, Since you haven't read it, and everybody should go out and buy it if you're interested, it's unbelievable. But if you could afterwards talk about what's happened at the journal since the arrival of uh, uh, Mr. Murdoch Sr., I I want to. I'll wave that question. (laughs) Uh, But I'd like to ask you first let's say you're the supreme regulator, and um, uh, you have to deal with the Horrific mistakes of two of our uh, Harvard people, Mr. Rubin and Mr. Summers, who are probably about as disgraced as it's possible to be now. But now you have to deal with do you want to take the Dodd bill uh, as it's emerging? Uh, What do you do with Paul Volcker's idea? What would you do to make things better in the future? You did mention. Uh, that some limits on credit uh, default swaps. But yeah. how, I mean, looking at what's going on, because obviously that affects the market too, the uh, progress of this legislation, what would what would you like to do, uh, but you don't have to put it in your article. <laughs> um,
1: I'm, I'm a first, I I'm no expert uh, in these matters. I have an opinion, but um, I, I think there's, Everyone's trying to figure what the next problem might be or looking in the back to see what the last problem was, but it's very hard to predict these things. These are experts, and they all missed the housing bubble, so they're all going to kind of predict. So some people say, well, the Fed should have more power. They should have less power. There should be some independent body to look for And, and George Soros has said that, too. Or the Fed should print bubbles in the future. And But what's a bubble? It's hard to define what a bubble is. Uh, Volcker says we should do less uh, proprietary trading, risky trading, which seems to make sense, but... Um, I don't know. Maybe some there's some value placed there. I would argue that there should be more money set aside in reserves at a lot of these firms because you don't know what the next problem is going to be. So given that, let's have some extra cash on their books. Now, I think the counter-argument to that is that, well, they'll be less competitive as a result, and there'll be maybe other people that spring up to do lending and compete, maybe non-bank banks, I suppose. Uh, maybe they won't be able to pay their people as much mm-hmm. as a result. You know, that's not the worst thing in the world. But um, they they were the big... I would also argue they should be breaking up firms like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase. Any firm that's too weak to fail shouldn't be allowed to exist. It should be broken up. So J.P. Morgan, if they collapse, we'd all be in trouble. So should we be breaking them up? I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated. It's tricky. But I don't see anybody kind of focused on that. So I would break up the biggest banks... And I would make them set aside more in reserves. So, in case, because we don't know, again, what, what the next problem is going to be, so let's set aside money just to be on the safe side. Mm-hmm. And what about Rupert? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert. So, um, let's see. Things have changed, but the question is how much they would have changed without Rupert. So in other words, I mean this is a lot of stuff you guys don't even focus on. My average story, and, and Karen is a former colleague, we used to write our average story was about eleven hundred words, right? About eleven hundred words. Now the average story is about eight hundred words. Now, to me that's horrible. I've got a lot to say. But um, the average reader doesn't really care, frankly. They do these studies, and they don't read till the end. Um, <laughs> my mother does, but... Um, <laughs> and, so, you know, they don't read to the end. So, you know, would that have changed anyway? Probably, because that's just the way we live. The world we live in, unfortunately, a lot of distractions and all that kind of stuff. So the stories are shorter. The front page is different. It's a little newsier. We still do investigative stuff. Um, I don't always agree with... Choices and we, we overplay some some things. I would argue, but maybe we would have done that anyway. It's hard to control this as an experiment. Um, I the, the editorial page is, has always been right uh, wing and it and it will be as well going forward, um, for good or for bad. I um, I don't work in D.C., so I know there's been a lot of scrutiny on the D.C. office and. When it comes to my group, we're the money investing group, and frankly, they do, they let us do our thing because they don't know as much about our area, and we're sort of the experts. We're seen as the experts. We've been doing it for a while. I've been there thirteen years, so they let us oh, they let us be at the at the margin. But yeah, no, listen, I think things are maybe um, pumped up a little bit more potentially, and um, but um, for good or for bad, and maybe we we sh- we don't we put stuff on the front page that maybe I, I would disagree with, but. Um, I don't I, in my personal world I don't think there's been that much changed.
0: And how much of a present is Rupert Murdoch at the dinner?
1: Um, every day, he sends me an email about what to write. Um, other than that, no <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, I've seen him like twice. Frankly, he's got a big empire, so we're. I think he likes owning the uh, Wall Street Journal. I used to work for him at the New York Post, actually, in an earlier lifetime, and I saw him more often back then. Um, he's a busy guy, so he comes around the office sometimes, um, and. Uh, he sent me a nice note uh, for my book, and that's probably the only kind con- um, really relationship I've ever had uh, with the guy. So he's not that much of a presence. But then again, you know, I'm a senior uh, writer. That's actually I think my title, but I'm not an editor. I'm not a- so he may have much more to do with the editors and uh, at the at the journal. And is there much so, uh,
0: speculation about what will happen when he's no longer around?
1: Some, not so much. Uh, the assumption is, I guess, a son who's not James. as. I'm sorry? James, not Lachlan. I, uh, yes. It's, it's wiggling now, apparently, right. according to this oh, is that true? N- New York huh. magazine article. Huh.
2: I mean, and he's just pitting the kids lovely, against Lovely, that's lovely. I mean, it's. Everybody should get this. When you're a billionaire, you know, have nothing else to do, you know. <laughs> you can do stuff like that. This um, yeah. Who is it by the
1: article? What?
2: Who wrote the article? Uh, I forgot, because I saw, got it, a uh, friend said it to the, uh, on, to me yeah. on the internet, and went on and on, and, York, on and on. But it's New York, not New Yorker. Uh, it's, a, it's New York Magazine, right, but I'm, I'm sure it's
1: around. Well, what's interesting is that I think the Suns have a very different sensibility than Murdoch, so it'll be fascinating to see
2: what happens. Well, and, and one of the thrusts was, he can't wait to destroy the New York Times. That's
1: true, yeah. that's true, yeah. that's true. I mean, he sees, it's both, it's, it's both um, ideological, I would guess, again, I do not read the piece. It's ideological, but also he's a great businessman, and he sees weakness uh, in the New York Times, and he sees, there are a lot of people out there that wouldn't mind uh, um, reading the Wall Street Journal, all things being equal, but they like to have sports, or they like to have local uh, news in New York, and so he's like, well, why don't we just increase that? And he's just a businessman, I think, and he sees uh a competitor that could be toppled and News Corp has other things going on so we've got resources. I mean one great thing about I have to I should have said is that um, other newspapers are on their heels, and we don't feel that way. It's not to say that we're loving life and uh, we're not getting raises, things like that, but we're not firing, we're not in, uh, in fear uh, every day of getting fired, and there's something great about that. And we're expanding. We just hired like 30 people for a New York bureau. We're going to do a New York-focused um, newspaper. And it's exciting to be in a place where there's actually some expansion, and, uh, I, uh, and honestly, we would have we fired maybe a third of our uh, workforce, if we're not, for Rupert Murdoch. Um, he, and he, because uh, he doesn't mind lose, again, I was at the New York Post, he doesn't mind news, newspapers that lose money, and uh, we were mismanaged before, badly mismanaged before, so at least we have somebody who loves newspapers. I mean, it could be Sam Zell, who doesn't love newspapers. Rupert Murdoch loves newspapers. You can argue ideologically with him, and um, he's too right-wing, etc. you could say. Um, I wouldn't, but you could say, but he loves newspapers, and, I, and as a journalist, you got to like that. Thank you. Yes? No anxiety
2: over the foxification of the Wall Street Journal or anything like how, that? How do you define <laughs> foxification? Well, I would say that Fox has a ideological bent. Oh, so they do, but why have the Wall Street Journal? Oh, about oh, what might well, happen to the off, journal? Obviously, that. Uh, there's, there's concern, there,
1: there's concern, yeah. Um, I've got real problems with, with both Fox and MSNBC, and it's all kind of partisan uh, screaming at each other. The, is
2: that just the. Characteristic of that media to attract attention,
1: maybe? Or? Uh, they've done maybe because it's done well. I mean, those guys have done really well that with that. Yeah, it does work for those guys. I and I was on NPR and they tried to get me into the thing, and I, I I tried to stay out of it. Oh, well, well, you consider John Paulson a hero, don't you? And I, and I don't consider him a hero whatsoever. He's a great character, very great. Look, the guys, I love the. I mean, I like the story because my characters are all great. I don't think they're heroes at all. They're not great people. Um, they make a contribution to this world. Should they be curing cancer? They probably should be. Um, <laughs> but um, they're not evil either. I like the gray, and I don't like taking st- sides necessarily. What I write about, I like objective kind of traditional journalism. And I am worried about that um, that kind of partisanship um, seeping into the media. So far, we're been p- pretty good about it, I think. But you know, you, you do worry about the future. Yeah. Peter, you got a question maybe? you.
0: Oh well, it, it kind of passed, but it actually—I I guess it—it it, it comes to this, the question of kind of are these guys heroes or not—and and you you just kind of asked, answered it in a sense. But you know, in general, the media, the financial media, not just it alone, has kind of tended to gravitate towards those who make the most money are the ones who are are made into heroes and the lions, etc. And so I guess I'm just kind of wondering whether. That phase is past. Or when I when I hear you talking about these guys, you just explained you don't consider them heroes, but just the focus and the way that they are portrayed as kind of like being smarter than the rest of the guys in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of. It, it, does it contribute to this culture of just focusing on he who makes the most money, and it's usually he. Um, yeah. Is uh, is the one who gets the most laudatory uh, Um.
1: There's a criticism there. There's a valid criticism there. I mean, some people have said, uh, "Well, Greg, you treat it like a game a little too much," and um. I'm um, trying to be aware of that, and I don't believe it's a game, I and mean, it brought down this, this um, country of ours. And I don't know, we write about the winners. I, I personally have, have a, in my career, I've really um, been attracted to guys who hit home runs and guys who strike out. Uh, and there's just a lot of drama as a writer in that, and I'm also into sports. Um, but, um, so, but I also like the strikeout stories, too, and I think you can learn a lot from those, too. Um, do we maybe build them up a little too much? I don't know. We're all maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm not. Maybe I'm too not objective enough. I try not to. We try not to. We try to have a healthy skepticism uh, about them, but maybe we fail.
0: If you would just be on, take Paulson on the couch for just a moment. Now, I mean, is he is he obsessed with the idea that some people think he got lucky, and now he's trying to demonstrate that he's really smart and smarter than everybody else because he's going to do it twice? Or what do you think is going on with mm. to, to put himself, based on what you're saying, he's put a lot of his $20 billion back into the market.
1: Yeah. Uh, John Paulson, uh, he, the way he answers that question is it's like Wimbledon. You win one year, you want to win again. So you don't tell guys like Agassi and Nadal whatever to kind of put down your racket after winning Wimbledon one year. So, And this is what they do, but it also reflects of. These guys, it's fascinating. These um, They come off as really kind of cocky in Masters of the Universe, but their very worth is determined by that screen in front of them. And it's all wiped clean at the end of the year, and you start all over again, right? And um, you've got this P&L, profit and loss, and um, it's a lot of it, and you know what your competitors are doing. It's fascinating how much they know about the competitors. I get all kinds of criticism. Um, from people on Wall Street, Greg, you only write negative stories about the industry, you only write negative stories, but I get these stories from people in the industry because they call me up and they say, hey, you know what's happening? He blew it. This kind of thing. So um, they're really very focused on each other and and their personality is really uh, tied up in it. So he would say, this is what I do. And, you know, in my book, I... I don't take a stand, but I raise the issue that John Paulson hasn't really given much in charity. He hasn't really done that much at all. And frankly, it doesn't even cross his mind. It's not to say charity doesn't cross his mind, but it doesn't cross his mind to kind of build something um, or do something great for this world. And he says, well, this is what I'm best at. I'm going to build up a lot of wealth, and then I'll give it away at some point, which is what Gates and Buffett both said. And to their credit, now they're doing a lot of great work. So you know, he maybe he'll do that in the future as well. I don't know. Last question. Uh,
2: President Obama said some time ago that uh, he's uh, determined that everybody in Washington is reading the Financial Times nowadays. How, how does the Wall Street Journal position
0: itself or regard the Financial Times,
3: the ascendancy of the Financial Times?
1: I can speak for the Wall Street Journal. I can speak for me. I think they do some things that are good, but... I have a lot of problems with a lot of their other stories. Um, they did a story yesterday on the front page, and I still don't quite understand what they were saying. So the writing isn't great, I would argue. They cover international markets probably. Uh, they, they did very well. Um, and I think it's like a cool thing to say, you know, oh, I read the Economist, or I read the Financial Times. It's sort of like you know the British accent makes you kind of smarter. <laughs> so holding a newspaper that's salmon collars, it's it's not your New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Oh, I got the salmon paper. They do some things well. I would argue we do things, more things, better than they do. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. They do. That. And we're in an interesting period now where macro kind of trends and events and debt on the balance sheets of Greece and and countries in our own country. Those are kind of larger issues. It's not about Dell's earnings anymore. And those are interesting political um, um, broader kind of issues that um, you need to be broader and international and, you know, they do a good job of that kind of stuff. So maybe it's that extent that they're, they're more important than they were a few years ago.
0: Gregory, Thank you.